Well, good morning, church, and welcome to Combined Worship on this Independence Weekend Sunday. It's good to see everybody here in the sanctuary, along with those who are joining us online. No doubt we have some joining us that are out of town. I am delighted that the Reverend Angela House has joined our staff. We're looking forward to serving together in the coming days. She'll be overseeing pastoral care and missions, along with an emerging pastoral care counseling center that we are investigating here at Northside. Also, we're thrilled to have Nathan Shear. Uh, Most of our parents already know him. He's worked with our children's and our youth choirs. He'll be joining us full-time. If we can pull him out of his shell, and just excite a little bit more energy in him. We think he's going to do really, really well. (laughs) We today are continuing our summer worship series that's entitled, Blessed to be a Blessing. And we're exploring the eight blessings or beatitudes pronounced by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we reach the halfway point with the fourth beatitude. It's in Matthew 5, verse 6, and it declares... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. One of the resources I'm using throughout this series is by a renowned biblical scholar named J. Ellsworth Calais. He wrote a book entitled Beatitudes from the Backside. And he looks at them from an unusual perspective and point of view. In the introduction to the fourth beatitude, he begins with an intriguing statement. He says, this beatitude has a double fault. It begins in a place we may not understand, and it ends in a place we may not necessarily want to go. It begins with the words, blessed are those. And over the past weeks, we have explored what it means to be blessed of God. And we've seen some versions translate the words to say, happy are those. Happiness certainly resonates with our culture. This weekend, we are celebrating the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which professes a belief in certain God-given inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Advertisers certainly grab hold of that promise because there are all sorts of products out there that are guaranteed to make you happy, fulfilled, and complete. But then Jesus associates blessedness or happiness with hunger and thirst. And that does not jibe with our worldly experience. We want to be sated and satisfied, not hungry and thirsty, and yet Jesus puts those in juxtaposition with one another and goes on to say that if you truly want to be blessed, if you truly want to be satisfied, if you truly want to be happy, then that only comes through the pursuit of righteousness. And that makes absolutely no sense to the world outside these walls. And if we're real honest, that may be a convicting word to those inside the church walls. Because righteousness may not always be our prime passion 
in our ultimate directive. Instead, we flirt with what it means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. And today, in the fourth beatitude, we are challenged to seek first God's kingdom so that everything else might fall into place in turn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I oftentimes meet church members and others at the OK Cafe for breakfast or lunch. And whenever the waitstaff brings the meal to the table, they typically say, hope you're hungry. Isn't that an interesting sentiment? In the South, it's a blessing over a sumptuous meal. In other parts of the world, it is a cruel taunt over an empty table. Now, all of us here have been hungry and thirsty, but it's my strong guess none of us have encountered chronic hunger and chronic thirst. And we need to take a step back in 21st century America and realize that Jesus was speaking in a very different time and place. His audience would not have heard these words metaphorically, but literally. They lived in a land that oftentimes experienced want. And many of the people in the congregation would know what it was like to live hand to mouth and day to day. Hebrew scriptures commanded that landowners pay their workers at the end of each day, otherwise they might go hungry. Israel both then and now is also a very arid place. Communities naturally sprung up around places where there was a reliable source of water, and people knew what it meant to thirst. Back in 2019, a group from Northside Church visited the Holy Land, and one of the places we stopped at was Jacob's Well, which today is located in the Palestinian city of Nablus, but in Hebrew scriptures would have been known as Shechem. And the patriarch Jacob dug the well originally, and it has provided water for millennia for that village and wider community. And we lowered the bucket down the 135-foot deep shaft and drew the water back up and could sip from a cup. And as we were doing so laboriously, it occurred to me, what would it be like to live in a time and a place where that was your source of water, to drink, to clean, to wash? And we realize there are places in the world still like that today. And some of us have been on mission trips where one of the purposes was to provide a reliable source of water for a village. Luke, when he recorded Jesus' Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6, put the words much more literally. And he wrote, blessed are those who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. But he also added, woe to you who are well fed now, for you will be hungry. Jesus uses those words of hunger as if you're starving for death, thirst as if you're dying of dehydration to describe our pursuit of righteousness. That this is not some idle pursuit, but it is something that is a life-driving passion. And it challenges us with the question, just how seriously do we take righteousness in our Christian lives? Is it a wistful wish? Or is it our life's aim? 
And depending upon the season of our Christian life, we probably answer in a variety of ways. Is faith a peripheral part of our personality? Is it an integral part of our identity? Is faith something we simply do when we have to go running to God to say, I really messed up, forgive me? I really need help, help me? I really feel lost, guide me? Or is it as vital and essential to our lives as our next heartbeat and the next breath that we take? And again, our answers, probably depending upon the age and stage of life, are yes and no and maybe. Blessed are those who hunger, who thirst for righteousness. And if you have different versions of the Bible, they might not use the word righteousness. They might use the word justice, goodness, right standing before God, obedience to God, doing what God requires. But I would like to marry today's Scripture lesson with another incident that occurs later in Jesus' ministry, and we're visiting it both today, and we'll revisit it again next week. So see, you're here, you have heard it, you're already ahead for next week's sermon. It's a very familiar passage. You've learned it in Sunday school and Bible studies and heard it in sermons about the expert in the law who came to Jesus one day and said, what's the greatest commandment? Out of the 600 plus commandments, laws, and ordinances in Hebrew scripture, which is number one? Absolutely at the top. And Jesus responded from Deuteronomy chapter six, what in Hebrew is known as the Shema. It is the very essence of Judaism, the heartbeat of the faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you will worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you also recall Jesus didn't stop there. He went on into Leviticus and married that verse with another verse which says, and love your neighbor as yourself. The expert for the law got not one answer, but three for the price of one. Because embedded in Jesus' words are... Righteousness is right relationship with God. It's right relationship with ourselves. And it's right relationship with others. It's first right relationship with God. During our Route 66 journey through the New Testament, this past spring we read the book of Romans. And in the devotional I did early on, I said, this is dense material. This is Paul's one effort at trying to give us a systematic theology of what he understands the gospel of Jesus Christ to be about. And when you boil it down, there is one phrase in Pauline theology that pretty much sums it up, and it is this, justification or salvation by grace through faith. Justification means that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And when we accept by faith, what God has done at the cross and at the empty tomb, God declares us righteous, declares us in right relationship with God. And we appropriate that gift by faith, and it's always through grace. That our acts of righteousness are not to earn God's merit, but in response to what God has already done for us. Romans 8, 28 sums up this journey of salvation and says, we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who trust in God, who have been called according to God's purpose. For those God foreknew, also were predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those predestined were called, those called were justified, and those justified were also glorified. And Paul describes this wondrous journey we are on as Christians from before what John Wesley calls prevenient grace, before we even think about Jesus, God is already pursuing us to salvation, to glorification and sanctification and beyond. And we ultimately live our lives recognizing we're not our own. We are God's, and we're called to live according to God's purposes. We have right relationship with God, which then gives us right relationship with ourselves. You ever felt torn apart, tugged in a dozen different directions, knowing what you ought to do, what you want to do, but doing just the opposite of tripping up over the same obstacle over and over again? Right relationship with self flows out of right relationship with God. Last week, we were talking about what it means to be meek. And at the end of the sermon, I suggested one of the places we need to be meek and gentle is with ourselves, to lighten up and allow God's light to shine within us and claim who we are and whose we are, that we are precious and valuable in the height and width and depth of God's love, mercy, and grace remind us of how priceless we are in God's sight. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because we have first been loved. It's by resting in the assurance of God's love for us that we can dare live as Christians in the world beyond us. So righteousness is right relationship with God, it's right relationship with ourselves, and then that flows out into right relationships with others about us. That we're called to love our neighbor as ourself. And there's a passage from 1 John I always find convicting. As I think about the various relationships I have in life, from the deep soul-giving relationships with family and close friends, and church members and brothers and sisters in Christ, to the more casual relationships we might have with neighbors, coworkers, or students, to the relationships we have with people when we're on Interstate 75. And I don't know if you've discovered this, but I saw this on a meme once, and it resonates so true in my own life. People who are driving slower than me are idiots. And people that are driving faster than me are maniacs. And I find it harder to practice my Christian faith on the interstate system maybe than anywhere else in the world. And listen to this passage. We do love because God first loved us. Whoever claims to love God but hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And God has given us this command, anybody who loves God must love their brother and their sister. And John repetitiously, redundantly repeats this over and over again. You can't pull it apart. Love of God, love of self, love of neighbor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But as I was getting ready for the sermon today, there is a nuance to this beatitude that, that I had never picked up before. It would have been much more efficient, much shorter and easier for Jesus to have said, blessed are the righteous. That's not what he said. What he said are, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which suggests the journey is just as important as the destination. 
I did a little bit more reading on this, and I've shared with you last week one of the persons I always turn to is uh, William Barclay. And on his commentary, he said, in God's mercy, God judges us not only by our achievements, but also by our dreams. Even if a person never attains goodness or righteousness, if he or she at the end of the day is still hungering and thirsting for it, they're not shut out from blessedness. I thought, well, that cannot be right. So I turned to J. Oldsworth Calais, and he said the same thing. He said, Jesus did not say, blessed are those who become righteous. If he had, few, if any of us, would have attained the blessing. But this beatitude reflects the grace of God, that we're judged by our intentions as much as our achievements. It's our hungering and thirsting that win the praise of God, not just our accomplishments. And I must tell you, I have very mixed feelings about these two renowned biblical scholars agreeing. On the one hand, I remember that adage I learned as a teenager that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I'm very aware that it's easy to trick myself into allowing the surface religiosity of life to substitute for a deep-seated faith. And one of the things Jesus accused and criticized the religious leaders of his time about was hypocrisy of saying one thing but doing the other. Yet on the other hand, we are all in process. And on our very best days, our testimony is, I'm not what I ought to be, but thank God I'm not what I was. I've shared in sermons before that when ministerial candidates in the United Methodist Church are being prepared to be ordained, they are asked a series of historical questions. And two of them include, are you going on to perfection? And do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? And when those two questions occur, inevitably, there is a nervous titter of laughter among the candidates, along with the third question, are you in debt so as to embarrass yourself? But I remember Bishop William Cannon one time asking those questions, and when the candidates began to laugh over, are you going on to perfection, he looked over his glasses at them and said, if you're not headed in that direction, which direction are you headed? called to respond to God's Word in our lives, and yes, we're not what we ought to be, but thank God we're not what we were, and that we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, and we hear the promise that we will be filled. That's the intent, the hunger and the thirst God honors and answers. When I was working on the sermon, an image that kept coming to mind about hungering and thirsting was when our children were babies and when they were hungry. You know what a baby does? It cries. And that doesn't even begin to describe what it's doing because there's something so elemental in that cry that you cannot ignore it. And you do everything in the world to satisfy it so they'll be quiet. Last week I shared a psalm of David from the 131st Psalm where he talked about our relationship with God is like a weaned child with its mother whose hunger has been satisfied, whose thirst has been met, and that child leans in confidence, trust, and love into his mother's arms. God calls us to do the same to hunger and thirst for righteousness with the knowledge and the assurance that God is waiting 
evermore to fill us. So blessed are you. Blessed are us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For you, we, they will be filled. Let us pray. Gracious God, call us to hunger. Call us to thirst. Call us to seek first your kingdom. To lean forward into your grace, wanting to know you more and more. Headed on towards perfection. Emulating Jesus in our lives. Made more and more to his image. May it be so. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.